This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Welcome to episode 14. I can't believe it's episode 14 already. I know, that must mean we've been doing this for seven months. That's so cool. I'm so excited about this. Yay. Yeah. So we were thinking about talking about our um, influential recordings from our formative years. Would you like to go first? Well, my recording I love to listen to and like fell in love with is super cliche, but I'm hoping people will be forgiving because it's so good. And it's the Jacqueline Dupre's recording of the Elgar Cello Concerto. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just don't think it gets any better than that. It's just so musical and it's so um, dramatic, but in a good way. And I just, I always, I've never actually stopped coming back to that recording whenever I just want to listen to something expressive and that'll just speak to my soul. I'm just like, it's got to be Jacqueline Dupre, it's got to be Elgar, and in some ways it almost feels like sacrilegious to listen to anyone else perform that work, <laughs> which I know is nonsensical, but I just, I love her, I I just fell in love with that recording, the documentary about her recording it, which used to be on YouTube, but has unfortunately been taken down, but in my undergraduate years I would just watch it religiously and just, I don't know, admire her longingly and feel <laughs> pride that we had the same first name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody on earth would fault you for loving Jacqueline Dupre. I'm <laughs> so hoping not. Safe there. <laughs> so I have a couple. The first one was from when I was but a wee undergraduate and uh, I studied with. <laughs> I thought you just said but a wee. And I was like, what's but a wee? <laughs> when I was first, but a wee. I was like, buttery. Okay. Anyway, but a wee undergraduate. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, when I was a tiny undergraduate, I uh, studied with Bert Lucarelli at the Hart School, and we had a pretty small studio, but we were super close. And we all had keys to his office because he wasn't there um, for the majority of the week. Um, so he would say, I don't care. Here, have a key to my office. You can go in there whenever I'm not teaching. And so uh, my friends and I would go into his office and we would have these ex 
extensive, like hours long read making sessions into, you know, early, early morning, like one or 2 a.m. We would just be making reads together and goofing around. And it was so much fun. Um, and we would listen to his recording of the Strauss Concerto and the Von Williams Concerto almost every time. And I just remember being floored every time, you know, by the phrasing and the musicality. And uh, it was so good. And I, you know, I still, I still have that sound in my ear, which I'm super grateful for. And then the other one is Becky Henderson's Is But a Dream CD. I listened to that a lot in my master's degree and especially the, um, her recording of Piazzolla's Oblivion. Like, it was, it's so good. <laughs> it's just like chocolatey and, oh, it's so good. Those are my two go-tos. You know, you're talking about uh, Mr. Lucarelli's uh, recordings kind of makes me think about, um, you know, I definitely romanticize kind of the the older recordings or the earlier recordings and especially um Studying with Matthew Ruggiero, I love those older recordings of the BSO, uh, mm-hmm. and there are several of them that are on YouTube of Bernstein conducting the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Um, I believe several of the Tchaikovsky symphonies are up there, and I love going back to those um, having lost Dr. Ruggiero. It's kind of this nostalgic uh, cool thing to get to see him. Uh, I studied with him during his senior years, and so I get to see him as this uh, young man, and they all have these great, like, 1970s sideburns that are just, like, <laughs> amazing. In fact, uh, <laughs> in grad school, we lovingly called that generation Dorio Dwyer and the Boston Chops because the sideburns are, like, so on point. Uh, but sideburns aside, it's uh, those, like, old recordings of my teacher. Uh, I definitely love going back and listening to, uh, not to mention Benjamin Cleo's uh, wonderful uh, array of CDs that he's put out. But, yeah, there's just something cool about getting on YouTube and watching this kind of uh, generation before us just rock out and see all these people that yeah. you recognize and, and that type of thing. It's very cool. Yeah. You know, we want to throw down like they do, but we have to throw down even better because everyone gets better and better and better. So you want to get better and better and better. <laughs> One kind of like anti-inspiration, well, it's definitely inspiration, um, but actually I refer to it in the interview that the listeners are about to hear. Um, But one thing, you know, we talk a lot about uh, imposter syndrome and performance anxiety, and we talk with Andrew Parker about the quest for perfection. And uh, one recording I used to go to all the time uh, is this YouTube clip of a 60 Minutes interview with... Pavarotti, and um, they're talking about uh, his career and that type of thing and how at that point he was being criticized as, you know, perhaps being in the twilight of his career or undisciplined or whatnot, and they talk about how he got blue, he got booed, <laughs> and uh, he got blued, he was buttery, and he was blued. <laughs> Uh, he got booed at La Scala and they play the clip of his voice cracking that caused them to boo. And I remember going back to it and watching it 
almost on a loop just to reassure myself, like, this is perhaps the greatest voice in the world, and he makes mistakes too, girl. And so you're doing okay. You're fine. Don't worry. And that was just very affirming to me to hear the Pavarotti blooper. So that was definitely a formative recording. You're like playing it on loop in a dark room in a corner wrapped in a blanket, like swaying <laughs> back and forth. Like, Everyone I'm makes okay. mistakes. I'm okay. Everyone I'm makes okay. mistakes. <laughs> you do something wrong, they, they, they can protest. They can boo you. And at La Scala in Milan, that's exactly what happened. Luciano failed to hit the high notes in the second act of Don Carlos. His voice cracked. So we're going to do something a little bit different for shout-outs this time. As many of you know, this is the last Double Read dish to air before the International Double Read Society Conference in Appleton, Wisconsin. And while Galit and I, unfortunately, will not be attending the conference this year, we did want to take this opportunity to shout-out all of our wonderful sponsors and especially point you to those who are going to be at IDRS this year. So um, we bring you Double Read Dish for free, and that is only with the aid of our wonderful sponsors. There are actually a bit of cost involved in um, hosting and publishing a podcast, and so we just really can't thank these companies enough for their support and just wanted to give them a little bit of extra love. So, Galit, why don't you talk to our listeners about who our sponsors are and where they can find them at IDRS. Sure. Well, JDW Sheet Music is going to have a booth. Um, so you should go say hi, say Double Read Dish sent you, and um, go peruse her materials because she does a lot of really cool arranging and um, for, you know, large Double Read ensembles as well as oboe and bassoon specific music. So that's really great. And Genda will also have a booth. So if you're in the market for a reed knife, you really can't get much better than them. So definitely go over to the Genda booth and JDW and say hi from Double Read Dish and um, check out what they have to offer and thank them for their support for us. Um, We also have a a sponsor who is not going to have a booth this year, but is actually performing. So Janet Ingle of Janet Ingle Reads is going to be performing on Saturday morning at 1030, works for solo oboe with and without tape. So if you have the time and uh, the ability, please go support her. Um, She's going to sound amazing, and we're really proud of her for that wonderful opportunity. And our other sponsors who will not have a booth include MKL Reads, Double or Nothing Reads, LLC, and Sing and Dog Double Reads. So we're really proud and um, excited to be affiliated with these awesome businesses and hope that you will share the love as well.
Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reads for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all capital letters, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda read knife, maintenance kit, read knife sharpening book, cutting block, and read tool roll. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. The Southern Oboe Intensive provides a distinctive opportunity for oboists to spend five days immersed in world-class instruction. The Intensive draws students from middle school through college graduates from throughout the United States. During the Intensive, students at all levels are coached by James Sullivan of the Alabama Symphony, Russ DeLuna of the San Francisco Symphony, and Phil Ross of the St. Louis Symphony. Not only are these gentlemen exceptional oboists, but each brings extraordinary and unique experience and perspective to share with the participants. An additional one-of-a-kind benefit of the intensive is a recital performed by Mr. Sullivan, Mr. DeLuna, and Mr. Ross. Students will be instantly inspired by the level of artistry, collegialism, and joy evoked when these three superb musicians collaborate. Visit southernoboeintensive.com for more information and to register. That's southernoboeintensive.com. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish Andy Parker, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Texas at Austin. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Could we start off? Our standard first question is to have our guests tell us a bit about themselves, their educational journey, how they came to their instrument, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I'd love to um, boil that down to uh, as short an answer as I can come up with. Um, basically, I started playing um, well, piano when I was four. Um, I actually asked my parents if I could take piano lessons. I uh, was drawn to music right from the very beginning. So I started piano, and I was in my church choir. And um, then when I was uh, in fourth grade, it was time to choose instruments for the band. And I decided I wanted to play the oboe. And I remember thinking at the time that, the oboe seemed the most interesting to me because that's the instrument you use to charm snakes. <laughs> so that, that was my, my main goal with the oboe was learning how to charm snakes. Um, but as, you know, looking back, I realized that there was something uh, that I was drawn to about the oboe on the gut level. Um, and throughout my middle school and high school career, I still kind of primarily focused on piano. I was also in a lot of choirs, um, but I did oboe, and I loved it. I was in the youth orchestra. I was in a very good high school band program. And then gradually, uh, through a series of events that if we have time, I might get into a little more detail, I kind of shifted my focus from piano to oboe. So by the time I was a senior, I knew what I wanted to do with my life and my career. And uh, so then I ended up going to Eastman uh, for my undergrad and studied with the amazing guru Richard Kilmer. 
And then I went to Yale for my master's and continued to study with him. Um, and then I won my first orchestral position, which was with the Great Falls Symphony in Montana. And that was wonderful. I did that for two years and left, and I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and played with a couple orchestras there and did some private teaching. And that's when my kind of realization that my skills were most suited for a collegiate teaching position, kind of that's when I had that realization. So I met Nancy King in the meantime at the Sarasota Music Festival and really clicked with her. And I thought, you know what? I'd really love to work with this woman. This is somebody who is um, really has life figured out in a way that I want to be a part of. So she said, you know, I've got a TA position opening up the following year, you know, come audition. And I did. And uh, so I ended up doing my doctorate at University of Michigan. And right after finishing that, I got my first job at the University of Iowa. And that's where I met you, Jackie, <laughs> and had a wonderful six years there. And then I got the job at UT Austin. So that's kind of the path that took me to where I am now. Did you have anyone um, who encouraged you as a young musician to pursue music professionally? Like, was that um, an internal motivation or more of an external motivation? I would say definitely both. Um, like I said before, I was drawn to music from a very young age. My, my mom tells me that when I was two years old, I used to sound out various, like, children's songs on my Fisher Price xylophone. Mm-hmm. Um, and just figure them out by ear. So it was clear that kind of the language of music was already kind of residing in my genes from a young age. Um, and then I have to say, I was very lucky. Um, in my childhood by coming into contact with several different music teachers. My first piano teacher, my, uh, I was in the Florida Boy Choir, my choir director there, my middle school band director, my high school band director, and, um, lots of other people I, I came into contact with, my oboe teachers that were all very, very supportive, uh, very, very nurturing, um, great musicians, held me to a high standard. It really, looking back, it seems so serendipitous, the path that took me to kind of a professional life as a classical musician, because so many of my teachers were incredibly nurturing, very good at what they did, and at no point did I ever doubt that classical music was something I could pursue as my life's calling. You've mentioned a couple times about participating in choirs, and one thing when I listen to your oboe playing um, that stands out to me is how vocal it is in quality. I love listening to your recordings because um, it is so vocal. Um, do you think that that uh, is influenced by your participating in choirs and whatnot, or is that something um, you've cultivated intentionally? Do you have recordings you look to as inspiration? I, I hope it's not abstract, but I'm kind of uh, curious as to your approach in terms of um, tone and vibrato, how you go about achieving that. Absolutely. That's, that's, I'm really glad you asked that because that's something particularly close to my heart and particularly close to kind of the fundamental philosophy of my oboe playing and my pedagogy. And you know, we all say that when we play, we should sing. 
and and I absolutely believe that. <laughs> um, but I actually take it even a step further. It's to me not even an abstract thing. It really feels like singing to me, even in terms of how I talk about kind of creating resonance and placement and where the body should be engaged and where the body should be relaxed. All those things to me, I'm constantly relating back to singing in my own playing and in my, my students. And a lot of that was intentional. A lot of it was born of the fact that I was in all these different choirs growing up. Um, I've always loved singing. It's always been a big part of my life. In fact, there have been times where I've wondered if I was either an opera singer in a past life or if I could have been one in this life, not in the sense that I regret my choice at all. The oboe is absolutely my calling, but I really, really feel it. I imagine the way a singer feels their voice. Um, and so I consciously cultivated that over the years um, by listening to all the best singers. Um, I went through an, an obsession with Renee Fleming that lasted for years and years during my undergrad. And uh, I think that actually, whether it was conscious or unconscious, kind of seeped into my playing um, through osmosis. Um, I, there's a lot of other singers as well. If we have time, we can I can give everybody a list of my favorite singers. <laughs> but that's been a huge part of my playing and my understanding of the oboe and my teaching of the oboe. And I really... Um, emphasize with my students how important it is for them to listen to these amazing singers. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just opera singers. I'm particularly drawn to that kind of singing in that repertoire. But um, there's great music theater singers, great jazz singers, great singers of all different genres. And if you really listen to the technique of their singing and watch their bodies and watch their voicing, you can learn so much about how to play your instrument and I think you're, you're referring, Jackie, specifically to my recording of the singing oboe. Um, and, you know, when I was in my early 20s, mid-20s, one thing I loved was play different singers singing Schubert, like Rene Fleming or Ian Bostridge or Fritz Wunderlich, and play along with them. For me at the time, it was just something fun to do, but I would try to emulate their phrasing, their legato, their use of vibrato, all of it, and their intonation, of course, which are all symbiotically related to one another. I tried to emulate that precisely and, and beautifully, and that's actually where kind of my idea of recording this album came from. I realized how, first of all, how fun it was to play that music, but also how useful it was for me to develop kind of my tone production and my sense of line. Can you talk a little bit more about how you incorporate um, the singing qualities of oboe playing that you uh, just so beautifully described into your teaching and pedagogy? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, it definitely comes in a lot of ways. Uh, in terms of specific activities I have the students do, um, I do a Schubert class, or actually just a leader class once a year, one of my studio classes. So I'll have, uh, I'll assign three or four students to prepare some sort of vocal piece to play for the studio, and they have to have the text. And they have to, you know, we discuss how their the text influences their phrasing choices. And, you know, if they get soft somewhere. So basically how you do text painting when you don't have the words at your disposal while you're making the music. 
So that that's one activity among several. But I would say it kind of creeps into every lesson. I'm constantly talking about placement when I'm teaching my students. I'm constantly talking about where they're conceptualizing the resonance, where they're conceptualizing the tone existing in space. Is it forward? Is it at the front? Is it what part of their face is vibrating with the sound? Where do they feel relaxed in their body? Where do they feel engaged in their body? So a lot of body awareness, a lot of breathing, and this is all stuff I've learned through watching singers and watching master classes taught by singers. Um, I'm sure you guys know, but Joyce DiDonato, who's one of my favorite singers and pedagogues out there, has dozens of her master classes uploaded to YouTube at various conservatories and schools. And I have learned so much about how to teach kind of that marriage between musical intention and body awareness. Um, she really understands how those two things serve one another. So a lot of that has kind of crept into my teaching, both consciously and through osmosis. And so, you know, and another thing we do is sing things in our lessons, too. Sometimes a student will be struggling with really making something sound connected and poetic, and I'll say, sing that. And then they'll do it, and then they'll, and I'll say, okay, play it like that. And they play it, and just, by doing that already, it sounds more organic and more beautiful. So I would say singing probably is the main tool I use in my teaching, whether that's actually singing something or just on a conceptual level. One of the things we really like to explore on the podcast is this um, very human side of music making. So the things that people struggle with a lot, performance, anxiety, imposter syndrome, things like that. And I wonder if you've had any experience with those type of things. Um, one of the things I admire about you is that you're a very positive person. Um, so if perhaps you've been able to sidestep some of those typical things or, or how you've dealt with them as someone who's held some very prominent positions and holds a very prominent position. Yeah, wonderful question. Another one that's close to my heart um, because I personally have had what I perceive as some of the most um, paralyzing issues with performance anxiety. You know, I look at a lot of my peers and colleagues, a lot of my friends that I admire so much, and I, I say to myself, my goodness, why do they not seem to have the same problems I do? Now, I'm sure some of them might look at me and say the same thing, um, but in my own experience internally over the years, I've had to deal with and process crippling anxiety and fear about getting up and performing. Um, I remember in my undergrad, there was a long period of time where I could barely get up in front of my studio class and play. I would shake so much. My breathing would get so tight. Um, my thoughts were so... Um, the thoughts of a saboteur, um, and, and just negative and not filled with much self-love or positivity. Um, 
so that's something I've had to work through over years and years and years. And, and so I think it makes me somebody who's good at helping a student or somebody else deal with that because it's not something that I've just been able to kind of gloss over. I've had to get in and get my hands dirty, really figuring out what am I going to do to resolve this issue because I will not have the kind of career that I believe in my heart that I could have if I can't deal with this. You know, there was a period of time where I would have a a performance where I felt like everything was exactly what I wanted it to be, and it felt so connected and in the flow, and I got such positive feedback. And then the next performance, I felt like I was all over the place, and I felt like I sounded like a beginner, and I just couldn't deal with that inconsistency. So, yes, this is something I know a fair bit about, and I have many techniques for helping myself and others kind of work through that. What would those be? Okay. Um, <laughs> we, want, we want the goods. Wait, we want the goods. Give us the good stuff. <laughs> well, I, I think of the techniques on multiple levels, okay? So there's there's the the everyday work of preparation, because, you know, one of my favorite pedagogues who I've actually never met, and he's I admire him just from what I've heard about him through others, and that's Yehuda Galad, the clarinet professor at USC. I heard a quote from him that says, when the lights come up, all that's left is your preparation. I'm, I'm misquoting that a little bit, but essentially he's saying, when you walk out on stage, you know, everything's going to fall away except for the quality of the preparation you put in. So that was a big, big aspect of it for me. Part of my inconsistency and fear was born of the fact that I wasn't really disciplined enough in my my daily work on the instrument, my fundamentals and my preparation with the music. I was kind of riding a little bit on natural talent. Um So actually, in kind of buckling down and deciding one day that I was really going to get really disciplined about this um, and and really work every day thoughtfully and mindfully on my fundamentals, that I already started to notice an improvement in the consistency of my performances. I still would get quite nervous, but I was able to kind of produce something that was – um, that had more of a sense of ownership to it because I'd put in the work. So that's an aspect of the prep of, of dealing with the nerves. Another aspect of it is something that you have to do without your instrument uh, or outside of your time with your instrument. And that's just kind of your daily work on your mind. And this is something I talk a lot to my students about. I think we overlook it a little bit. You know, we have a tendency as human beings to have all these thoughts running through our heads constantly about how we're not good enough, about how we're not attractive enough, about how we're you know, this or that, but they tend to be pretty negative. The kind of things that you would not want to say to somebody else, your loved one or your good friend, why do we talk to ourselves in a way that we would never talk to somebody else we love? So I think it's really important to develop kind of a conscious awareness of that um, line of negative thought 
that goes through your mind every day. And I think it's important to not necessarily try to change it or fix it, because I find that if you view it as um, a problem that needs to be fixed, that can sometimes actually make it stronger. But instead, just kind of develop an objective awareness of it. See it for what it is, recognize it, and kind of choose not to follow it. Just let it pass through. And I, I think by doing that, I've actually cultivated an ability to do that while I'm in performance. So it helps on multiple levels. One, it just creates a more positive landscape in your mind already, which does nothing but good in your life. But two, it also gives you the ability in a performance when those thoughts start creeping in. And I'll never forget, I don't know if you were there, Jackie, um, but I played uh, a recital at the New York IDRS, I think it was in 2014, and I played the Schumann Distelie because that was on my CD. And I was so nervous for that performance. I mean, there were so many wonderful oboists and bassoonists in the audience who I look up to and respect so much, and I put so much pressure on myself because I was going to be starting my new job at UT Austin. <laughs> and and all all the thoughts going through my head before the performance with, you can't mess this up. You know, you don't want people to think you're a fraud. You know, you don't want people to question, how did he get that job? So I go out to start playing, and I I'm, the first few notes are coming out, and my first thoughts are, oh, my God, you chose the wrong read. Oh, my God, you're not going to make it to the end of this performance. It's happening right in front of these people. They're going to see you fall apart. Those were the thoughts that came into my mind the, almost the second I started playing. And because I've spent the last several years kind of cultivating a way of dealing with those thoughts that I think is loving, uh, I was kind of able, you know, slowly to transform those thoughts into going deeper into the music. And um, it, it wasn't necessarily a super easy process. It didn't happen right away. It took a few songs or a few movements of the piece for me to kind of get to that place where I was back in the flow. But that's a skill I think you can work on and develop every day, whatever you're doing, whether you're playing your instrument or not. I love what you said about preparation and fundamentals, um, mm -hmm. as well as all of the mental stuff, too, because that is really huge. And it sounds like meditation and mindfulness work, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your fundamentals routine and what you prioritize um, when you practice. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> you know, what I discovered is that there's a couple things you need to do when you're working on your fundamentals. And I'm going to maybe refer to scales and arpeggios and stuff like that, because that's kind of where I start my fundamental work to me, scales and arpeggios and long tones to a certain degree as well. Um, those things are kind of the building blocks of the language of music. But where I think we get stuck when we're working on them a little bit is underestimating how they can be doorways into kind of creativity in our playing. So for me, fundamentals is, of course, working on, you know, your use of air and embouchure, the tone production, the fluidity of your finger motion, um, just building in patterns in your technique and scales and arpeggios are wonderful for that. But what they can also do if you put yourself in the right mindset is kind of open yourself up to um, 
the poetry of the music, the, the, uh, this is kind of hard to describe. I guess I'll just tell you what I do specifically. So when I start a practice session, I pick a key area and I'm constantly kind of aware of what key areas I've worked on recently. So I'm kind of constantly trying to shift that because if you guys have noticed this in your own practicing, sometimes we have a tendency to avoid things that we struggle with and, and work on things that we're already good at. You're right. <laughs> I do have key areas, you know. It's like, oh, let's work on D major again today. <laughs> um, so you have to kind of make sure you're aware on that meta level of what you've been working on, and and push yourself to to face the things that you're afraid of. So you know, okay, today we're going to work on you know our B flat harmonic minor scale or our you know G flat major scale or whatever. And I first just start slowly like kind of slurred and I'm just working on kind of getting that tautness of air uh, that allows for a true legato to occur in the playing, establishing that real connection, um, really thinking about the airspeed as being the source of the, the tone and doing as little with the embouchure as possible, checking in with my body. You know, I think a lot of fundamentals is actually body conditioning and awareness. It's like you're training to be an Olympic athlete. You have to be really cognizant of where tension is stacking up and building in your body and, and release that and, and be kind of develop a real awareness of that. And then over time, I gradually start speeding up the scale and introducing some other elements like different articulations or rhythms. But what I do is then if I feel myself, if I feel a melody forming in my mind based on that scale, I'll go with that melody. So when I'm practicing my fundamentals, I'm not just thinking about my technique. I'm also thinking about developing kind of improvisation, spontaneity. I'm opening up my ears to the, that kind of the muse, I guess, is what I would call it. When it's like all of a sudden you hear a melody coming into your mind because that scale evokes something, then I'll play it. And I'll try to figure out how to weave the scale and that melody together so that I'm still working on the the patterns that that scale is um, – that the scale contains, but I'm using something more melodic, something more lyrical perhaps, or, or something more complex to do that same work. And then by after doing that for a while, all of a sudden I've completely, I'm not playing the scale at all anymore, but I'm playing some sort of beautiful melody. Now I'm, I know that this, may take time for people who have never done it before. I'm not saying the first time you try doing this, you're going to become a master improvisation uh, artist. <laughs> but I think if you kind of work towards that gradually and try that, then your your daily fundamental work can work on developing your creativity as a musician in addition to your technique. Um, and then of course, you know, I like to, I've got my standard etudes that I like to come back to over and over again, my Fairling, my Barrett, Leo Singer, Jolet, and I'll work on those even if I've played them hundreds and hundreds of times because part of the work I'm doing is learning to hear more deeply learning to hear more subtlety of nuance. So every time I play those things, I'm consciously trying to open my ears up to what exists in the music already that I still haven't discovered, still haven't noticed. 
Um, so I think that's also a big part of fundamentals. So I think what I'm trying to say essentially is that we all need to expand our understanding of what working on fundamentals really means. Um, you had mentioned your recital at IDRS in New York a couple of years back. I wonder what other um, performances in your past stand out as particularly memorable. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> so many, so many great ones. Well, you know, I, I I saw that question on your list that you sent out, and I thought about that. One of my favorite performances that sticks out and that popped into my mind immediately was when I played the Rite of Spring at Eastman uh, when I was an undergrad. It was the first time I'd ever played it, and it was the first time that most of my, my friends and colleagues there had ever played it. And I remember we were all excited and nervous, and, um, you know, the rehearsals kind of felt a little shaky at times. Some of the more complex rhythms didn't feel like they were gelling maybe as well as they needed to. And I'll never forget when we performed about, I don't remember, maybe a third or halfway through the the performance, I felt kind of this shift in the whole group, this kind of almost fiery, focused, powerful energy. And I, I felt everybody sitting forwards in their seats. It was like this collective concentration and intention that was so... I mean, I remember getting goosebumps while I was playing and feeling this kind of like smile behind my face, just this like, oh, my God, this is so powerful. This is so neat. And we played a performance that was just on another level of that piece for what we had done in the rehearsals and what we had maybe believed to be capable. It just felt so polished and and um, filled with intention and energy. And everybody was talking about it afterwards. And I just remember thinking, that is why I love this so much. That feeling of creation, of being in the moment and being part of this larger force that's channeling some kind of energy that the listener's getting swept along in and with. And I'm like, that is, that's magic. I want to do that every time. So as we all know, playing the oboe and the bassoon is an incredibly time-consuming undertaking, especially to do it at an extremely high level like you do. Um, how do you achieve work-life balance if there is such a thing? Yes, that's yeah, another beautiful question and very important for all of us um, because I think to reach your full potential as a musician you have to make sure you're consciously spending time and energy in other ways besides making your music, spending time with your loved ones, um, feeding your mind and heart with art, books, uh, movies, cinema, all kinds of things. I think it's really, really important that we don't get too kind of tunnel vision about our craft. Um, so for me, uh, my family is extremely important. My husband, my, uh, our kind of household, our life situation, that's something that I really need to, in order to feel like I can bring my best as an oboist and a teacher every day, then I need to make sure that I'm really nurturing that relationship uh, and that facet of my life. And that's what kind of feeds my soul 
and allows me to play at the level I want to play at. Now, I think a lot of this balance stuff really boils down to kind of an awareness on the meta level of how you're spending your time on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual level. I think you need to, there can be periods of time where you're really spending hours every day at your read desk and, and really practicing. That's absolutely okay. But, you know, you have to make sure then that you balance that over the long haul over time where you're spending less time at the read desk and less time practicing. So it's something that you just have to really kind of, as you said before, have a mindfulness about. You can't, uh, you can't just let it happen. You have to kind of be aware of how you've been spending your time on, like I said, on a daily, weekly, so on basis and be willing to make tiny little shifts or maybe even big shifts as need be. And you have to really listen to your, listen to your body, listen to your heart. They'll tell you what you need. They'll tell you when it's time to step away from this or give more time to that. Um, and it's a process and you're going to mess up Sometimes you're going to burn yourself out on this or that, or you're going to have an experience where maybe you didn't prepare as much as you needed to, and that's okay. And the number one thing is to recognize that you're not going to, there's no such thing as perfection as we understand perfection. You know, perfection is what is. It's, it already, everything is perfect as it is already. But we have this idea of perfection as never messing up, never making a mistake. And to me, that's really actually, that that's, um, you're really missing out on something by being afraid of messing up or making a mistake because that's really the good stuff. That's really where you learn. That's really where you can say, all right, what did I do there that got me to that point? And how can I shift that or change that so that doesn't happen again? You just investigate it kind of objectively and scientifically and and allow yourself to learn from it. So to me, I treat discovering the balance of my life kind of the same way I treat my instrument and my craft. It's a daily practice. And I have to, you know, be open-minded about it, forgiving about it, and flexible about it. I love what you were just saying about the the quest for perfection and the the perception of perfection. I remember um, when I was younger, I had a hard time kind of wrapping myself around this, you know, idea of the quest for perfection and Pavarotti later in his life did an interview with 48 Hours where they were talking about, you know, is he in the twilight of his career or whatnot? And they played a clip of his voice cracking at La Scala. And I remember watching that over and over and over, just telling myself, Jackie, it's okay. Like, even his voice cracks, you know, like, yeah, it's such good words, such good things to think about. Um, You talked about your... uh, album the singing oboe what other pieces do you love to play um transcriptions or you know solo oboe repertoire chamber orchestral what are the things you really love to perform yeah that's a great question too i mean i'm kind of in uh, for the most part an equal opportunity oboist i mean I, I like so much music. I enjoy playing so much music and I feel like every piece I play reveals a new uh, facet of the language of music to me. So I have like such an, 
adventurous and exploratory approach to to music. And in fact, I just did a recital a few weeks ago that was all, I played four works on it, and they were all pieces I'd never performed before, never learned before. And in fact, a couple of them were pieces that have virtually no recordings or very few available. So they were very new to the audience as well. Um, and one of the pieces I played was, was the Howells Sonata, which is a relatively well-known oboe piece. It's not performed a ton, but it's performed and there's a couple recordings of it. Um, but I played a, a Romanian sonata by the composer Tadutsa, and there's very few, if any, recordings of that work. Um, and I found a couple very kind of esoteric videos of bits of it on YouTube, um, but very not well-known work. Um, so, and what I loved about that is it allowed me to kind of explore Romanian folk music within the Western art music paradigm. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is I like a lot of stuff. I know that's a very cliche answer. <laughs> of course, I have my favorites. So there's pieces that I come back to regularly, um, in part because I just love them so much, but also because I think they're just good for your playing. I think they just, you know, hold your playing to a high standard. I have a huge, I've got the, the big volumes of all the Bach cantatas and oratorios. So I play, um, I play a Bach aria pretty much every day. I really believe Bach keeps you in line as a musician. Um, I love playing the Von Williams Concerto. I love playing the Strauss Concerto. I love playing the Poulenc Sonata. I love playing the Due to You Sonata. I love playing Britain's Six Metamorphoses. These are pieces that are on my stand constantly, and I perform them a lot, I mean, I don't mean performance in front of audiences. I mean, in my music room at home, I play entire recitals almost every single day of multiple pieces just to keep kind of my performance uh, flow sharp <laughs> and engaged and strong. Um, and I enjoy it. I do. And when I practice there's no difference for me in my mental state when I'm practicing versus when I'm performing. I, even if I'm just like doing a long tone or even if I'm just, you know, isolating a, a run from a piece and play, working on it slowly and carefully, I'm playing every note I play is with the same exact intention and will and desire for beauty as I would if I were on stage. So, I, I, maybe that's why I like a lot of pieces, because to me it's more about kind of the art form of making music than it is about the specific pieces I play. They're all in service to that. I'd like to jump on over to reed making, if I could. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it to the oboist. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, what is the best advice you've gotten about reed making, and what advice do you give to your students? Oh, <laughs> okay. The best advice I've gotten about reed making is probably be patient. I mean, it's also, you know, kind of one of those very obvious, maybe cliche sorts of answers, but I really think that's what it's boiled. That's what it boils down to. I mean, the key to being a good read maker is understanding that it's a process that takes a long time to master and get good at. And of course, the more 
the more time and energy, uh, assuming it's good positive time and positive energy you put into it, um, maybe the, the quicker you develop the skill, but really it's a matter of understanding that it's a process that just takes time. Um, now that being said, I think what I would, what I like to tell students and talk about on, on kind of the biggest, broadest level, which supplements what I just said, is that just like I was saying before about practicing and mindfulness, that is got to be to me the most important part about developing your read making. I see so many students, so many peers and colleagues talk about read making in such a negative way. Um, and I have before in the past too. Um, but they're complaining about it and complaining about their reads and they treat it like it's a chore that you have to kind of do to do what you really love. And let me tell you something. The more you can cultivate a deep enjoyment of read making so that it's just as fulfilling and just as interesting and engaging as oboe playing, the better your reads are going to be and the quicker you're going to develop some sort of mastery over read making. And, you know, I think some people might say, well, that's not me. I'm just never going to like read making. Some people just like it and some don't. I don't really believe that to be true. I, I hate to, you know, to counter uh, anybody's opinion about that, but I really think that anybody can cultivate an enjoyment of it. And it's in the same method I talked about before. It's about being mindful about your thoughts about it. You have, you control your perspective about anything. So if your perspective about read making is one of distaste and, and non-enjoyment, well then shift your perspective. It may take time, but if you believe it's not possible to shift your perspective, then you never will. So that's probably the most important thing to me. And I bring that to my read making, not just on the kind of big abstract level, but on a very specific level. When I'm scraping my reads and when I'm working on my read making, I treat the materials and I treat the process with the same love and same um, commitment to beauty that I do when I'm playing my instrument. So every scrape that I, you know, I think about the rhythm of it. I think about the quality of it. I think about kind of the way my mind and body feel. Are they engaged and focused and positive or are they tight and frustrated and annoyed? And if they're tight and frustrated and annoyed, I put it away for the moment unless I can kind of shift that in the moment to something better. But if I can't, then I just put things away. I'm not going to even try working on the read because I, you know, this may be a little bit um, <laughs> touchy-feely for some people, but I do believe that the read absorbs whatever state of mind you have about it. So if you're scraping at it with this belief that it's just going to be garbage, then I think that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, and of course, you. I think it's important to have a good good teacher for read making. For most people, that is, and I know some teachers' philosophies are kind of throw the student into the deep end and let them figure it out. Um, that wouldn't work for me. I really emphasize read making with my le in my lessons with my students because I really think it's important that they're playing on really good, really stable reads right from the beginning so they can start developing good habits and their fundamentals. 
Now, of course, as a teacher, you have to balance that. If you're helping students too much with their reads and they're starting to rely on you, you know, you have to be really aware of that as a teacher and you have to know the right time to kind of cut off or back off a little bit on the support. Um, so, and that to me is part of the fun of, of being a teacher is being aware of that balance. Um, but I do think helping students get really good at their read making and making good reads right from the beginning, even if that means that you're spending a little more time on read making early on than maybe some teachers would want to, to me, that's really helpful over the long haul. I'd like to kind of combine two of our standard questions and ask you um, what you would say to a younger version of yourself slash what you would uh, say to a young oboist who aspires to have a career like yours? Great. Um, Okay, so what I would say to a younger version of myself is, um, (sighs) that's a tough question. I (laughs) I would say it's going to get easier. (laughs) I would say, you know, you're on the right path. And I kind of always knew that, sort of, but I definitely had my moments of existential crisis. I did. So I would go back to to myself in those moments where I was like, I'm never going to be able to play at the level I'm capable of. I'm never going to be able to perform without feeling, you know, paralyzed with fear and doubt. I would go back and say, first of all, that's not true. You will be someday. And second of all, it's okay that that's what's happening now. It's part of your path. It's part of your process. And even though it seems like maybe other people aren't dealing with that, that is totally fine. You know, stop comparing yourself to anybody else and just focus on what you need to do to become the artist that already lives inside of you. Um, and then what was the second question? What advice you would give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like you? Well, probably, I mean, I would certainly say what I just said. Uh, I would also say um, be wary of people who try to steer you away from being a musician in whatever form that means for you. Um If you are truly passionate about it, if this is what you love to do every single day, then be wary of people that say, oh, it's a dying art or, oh, it's really hard to make it as a musician. Those things may or may not be true. I don't I don't personally think they're true, but I'm also generally an idealist, so I don't know. Um, But people can. People's words and ideas can plant seeds, and we sometimes, I think, underestimate um, the effect our words can have on other people. Um, So what I tell students is this is a challenging path. This is a challenging field, career. Um, This is what it takes to do it, and I lay it out for them. I say this is the kind of energy, this is the kind of attitude, this is the kind of work ethic, this is the level of passion it takes to make it in this field. 
I don't tell them you can't do it, even if in, the, in that time they don't have those things. Because sometimes students, when they're 19 years old, don't have the work ethic and don't have the energy and don't have the depth of passion necessary. But I'm not going to tell them they will never have that. I am not going to be the person that plants that seed. Instead, I just give them the straight-up facts as to what it takes to do this, and then I work with them and and guide them towards that, and maybe two years later, they have those things, and those things have blossomed, or maybe they don't, and they start to think, you know, this really isn't for me. That's okay, but I'm not going to be the one to tell them that. Andy Parker, it was such a joy to talk to you today. Um, would you close off by uh, talking about some upcoming performances or projects that you have and where our listeners can find you on the Internet? Sure. Um, okay. So, um, well, upcoming performances and projects I've got, um, I'm playing actually this coming weekend um, in Puerto Rico. I'm playing a concerto for two oboes, um, an orchestra. Uh, and then I've got a performance coming up at IDRS in June, and I'm sure all our listeners know that that's in Appleton, Wisconsin, but I'm playing with Nancy Ambrose King. We're going to be doing um, selections from our upcoming album we recorded last summer. So I've got a, I've actually got two CDs that are going to be coming out soon. One is a Handel Trio Sonata album, and that's with Nancy Ambrose King and Kristen Wolf Jensen and our harpsichord. Artist Jonathan Rhodes Lee. So that's going to be, we're going to be playing on one of the evening concerts at the IDRS. I believe it's the Wednesday night concert. And then I've got another CD coming out, and that is a trio uh, album for oboe, bassoon, and piano with your former teacher, Jackie. Um, so that's with Ben Quaylio and Alan Huckleberry. And that's a really particularly cool album because it's a bunch of works for that instrumentation that are not very well known at all, uh, either recently composed or just not often performed works. So keep your eye out for that. That's going to be coming out on the MSR record label, and the Handel Trio Sonata album will be coming out on the Equilibrium record label. Um, I'm going to be performing at Round Top Music Festival this summer. Um, and then next year, uh, I've got a couple things coming up here and there. I'm going to be um, the guest for the Double Read Day at Bowling Green State. Um, and then I'm going to be recording an album next summer, and this is going to feature some of the works I played on my recent recital, um, particularly some of the Roman. Romanian music that I played because those have not been recorded um, and I'm going to be recording that with a wonderful pianist named Colette Valentine so that should be probably coming out then the following year. Um, so I've got three CDs that are either near completion or on the works right now. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you guys. It was a pleasure. As always, you can find us on all of the social media. We're available on Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes, as well as YouTube. We love hearing from you at doublereaddish at gmail.com. And thank you to our wonderful sponsors, and good luck to everybody who is performing at the IDRS convention.